Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It's 8.56 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time. It is the 5th of October, 2022. I believe this is episode 625 of Bitcoin and, but I'm not sure. You know, it's it's like that sometimes for, you know, for the older folks. We just have these senior moments, even though I'm nowhere close to being a senior, but sometimes I feel like I'm 70. Not physically, mentally, just saying. Okay, look, I'm going to start this out with a toot, not a tweet, because I want to talk a little bit about a couple of things here. Think of all the processes, procedures, and time involved in getting milk to the grocery store, even organic, just to learn that it's 100% dead, pasteurized, and homogenized. Americans are the dumbest people I've ever met. I said a few things about America and my view on on the United States of America in the show yesterday. So as you if you listened yesterday, you already know it's not the United States of America that I hate. It's federal government. All right. It's especially the federal government that we've allowed to be created that. And I'm not talking about the constitutional federal government, like at the very, very, very start of the nation. That was kind of okay. But what we've, through apathy, allowed to happen is a behemoth to form that is crushing the life out of everything, including milk. In fact, I don't know if you guys know this, there are more restrictions on producing, packing, shipping, and putting milk on the shelves in a grocery store than any other agricultural product known to mankind. A lot of people don't know that. You might think, well, but beef, yeah. Beef is easier to get to the market. Not that it's easy to get to the market, it's not. Nothing that we eat is easy to get to a market, unless it's a farmer's market, but that really doesn't sustain the farmer, okay? We're talking retail outlets to put your agricultural product whether you're big or small, into a retail store and on a shelf that you know Joe Blow can just go pick up is daunting at best. But milk is the worst. It's absolutely the worst as far as product procedures and shit goes. All right, so, and he's right. It gets to the store and it's 100% dead, but it's not because Americans are fucking stupid. Right? Americans, generally speaking, are not stupid. We're apathetic. That's the problem. And that apathy, the same apathy, apathy that has allowed our milk to go on stores 100% dead because he's absolutely correct. There's no living thing in milk. And milk should be a living thing. All right? 
you can get kombucha on the shelves easier than you can get milk. And what is kombucha? It's a probiotic. It's got all kinds of bacteria in it and it's designed that way. And yet we destroy milk. That's because of apathy. We're not watching what regulators are doing and we're not calling their shit out on it. Now, are we too far gone to be able to claw it back? Probably, probably, which means that we're going to have to do things, do things differently outside of regulation. And I don't know, risk fines and jail time. I don't know what to do at that point. Okay. And if you're a milk producer and you're listening to me, I know you're not going to do that. I know you're not going to do that. That's okay. But if we could at least start thinking about, well, if I were to do it, how could I get away with it? We should at least be thinking that way. Why? Because that's adversarial thinking, which is what Bitcoin trains us to do. But once you pretty much adversely think about all the bad shit that can happen to Bitcoin, it would behoove you to start thinking about all the other shit that we could look at in an adversarial way, especially in terms of how to get away with it. Like raw milk being sold as pet food in states that do not allow raw milk to be sold for human consumption. It's pet food, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. It's written, there are people that do that shit. There there are people that understand that the guy that's selling raw milk at his farm store that says for animal and pet consumption only, actually it has to be for pet consumption. You can't even feed raw milk to fucking cattle. There's a law against that shit because it's raw milk to cattle that's going to be producing some kind of food stuff for the human gut. And because of that, the milk must be dead. But if it's your pet, now that's fine. You know, I don't know who's going to buy a whole gallon of pet milk, you know, and not, you know, and actually think that they have enough cats to drink it all. No, 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 no. That's adversarial thinking. And the same thing goes with ground beef. There's a lot of people that say for pet consumption only, on ground beef, sold fresh at a farm store, and humans buy it because it's wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Everybody listening, start thinking about not actually doing it yet, but thinking about ways to get around how or how to get around doing uh, not doing something that you don't want to do, and not get in trouble for it. All right, so that that apathy. What am I trying to say here? That apathy has allowed all of our food system to become what it is. And what is it? It's just, it just sucks the life out of everything. So just be aware that it's not just trying to source good, clean food. You know, it, it's, it's about looking square in the face of the problem that is the United States Department of Agriculture and understanding that it's our fault. It is 100% our fault. We were so apathetic. We were so driven to get the job, to get the college education, to go to high school. We were so driven to make sure that our 401k was stacked to the nines and beyond that we forgot to look out the window into the actual world. The day-to-day shit that we have to actually do, the food we need to go procure. And we've just lit any idiot with a lobbyist and a briefcase full of cash tell us how we were going to operate. And it's just, it's pathetic. So that said, 
Let's get on into the news. How a $5 Bitcoin purchase cascaded into a $1.5 million viral moment. Uh, Stack Chain Quant writing this one for Bitcoin Magazine. Almost two months before he deleted his account, Arizonan Hoddle tweeted an unassuming screenshot of a $5 Bitcoin purchase. Any regular person, and by regular, I mean not a psychopathic, dark, tetrad Bitcoin fanatic, wouldn't have batted an eye. But those of us that are familiar with Bitcoin Twitter know that the community, like Bitcoin itself, is an unstoppable force, even through a bear market. This was the case for Arizonan, Arizonan Hoddle's tweet, from which a new Bitcoin subculture full of stacking sats and making memes was born. The stack chain. What is the stack chain? Well, the stack chain is the gamification of stacking sats with your fellow Bitcoin plebs. It all takes place on a single Twitter thread, which consists of screenshots of Bitcoin buys called blocks. Each block is $1 more than the previous and the latest block known as the tip can be found by searching the hashtag uh, stack chain tip, hashtag stack chain tip and sorting by latest. The story goes like this. Arizona Hoddle posts his $5 Bitcoin buy. Happy Clown Time, also known as Bob, followed it up with a $6 buy. And Sats Keeper followed Bob with a $7 buy. You can see where this is going, and so did Bitcoin Twitter. In a matter of weeks, this, that stack chain had drawn in 400 unique plebs into stacking on the stack chain. The $1 incremental purchases have continued, and there's just no end in sight. Many plebs have speculated that the stack chain is the single largest thread on Twitter, and that isn't the only crazy stack chain statistics. In eight weeks, those participating in the stack chain went from having bought a mere $5 of Bitcoin to a whopping $1.5 million of Bitcoin cumulatively, or in Bitcoin terms, from accumulating a few thousand sats to over 7.5 billion Satoshis, or 75 Bitcoin, ladies and gentlemen. Stack chainers not only have an undeniable goal of growing their stacks, but they also aim to further Bitcoin adoption. Coordinating fundraisers for Bitcoin-related initiatives is very much aligned with that goal. Here are a few projects the Stack Chain has donated to. Stacks for Bitcoin Beach, an initiative where Stack Chainers raised over $6,000 uh, to help fund Bitcoin education in El Salvador. The Flash Stack for Bitcoin, Ikasi, E-K-A-S-I, Akazi? Yeah. The donations funded the purchase of 30 phones for kids in an African township so that they could have the opportunity to learn about Bitcoin by working for and earning rewards in Bitcoin. Flash stack for Hodlinot. Stack chainers raised several thousand dollars using the tag stacks for Hodlinot to help fund Hodlinot in his illegal battle against uh, fake Toshi. So, rules and stack chain improvement proposals, also known as SIPs. Stack chain's rule set continues to grow. For a deeper dive into the rule set and stack chain apps, uh, check out our GitHub here and a link is given. But the three most important stack chain components to remember are, one, stack joins. A stack join is, is, is when multiple plebs combine their Bitcoin purchases so that the sum of all the purchases equals the stack height. 
As an example, let's say the stack height is $500. Five people can each stack $100 and include all of the buys in link and or photo form in the stack joined block. Uh, block. Tag your Bitcoin by hashtag stack join and it will be added to the stack join mempool. It can be as little as $1. Two, solo blocks. This is when somebody purchases the total block. To do so, or sorry, to do so, find the stack chain tip and comment the amount of the previous buy plus $1 directly to the tip. Forks. This occurs when two or more people stack the same block, creating a chain split. Jesus, this is amazing. It's like a fract it's like fractal geometry, man. These forks can continue for multiple blocks as stackers fight over which fork should win. <laughs> this was the case for many blocks, including blocks 888 and 1492 and the three forks that are currently being resolved. Stack chain whales have been a huge help in increasing the stack heights and leaderboards have been a fun way to gamify stacking SAS. From the leaderboards, we can see that stack joints have become an ever-increasing contributor to growing the stack height. They have been steadily growing into the largest spot on the leaderboards and are expected to continue to do so as blocks get more expensive. Stack joins are tied for third on the block count leaderboard and are fourth place on the cuck bucks burned leaderboard. <laughs> oh my God. In memory of our beloved Arizona and Arizona and Hoddle, uh, and his Twitter account, then <clears throat> they give a series of memes with Einstein and, uh, what looks like, a. Uh, well, I, I don't know. It looks like a, a guy from ancient Greece and clearly Newton is there and all kinds of stuff. So <clears throat> this is interesting because for a long time, um, a, for a long time, I actually thought Stack Chain was was another Bitcoin wannabe. I know I I even I miss stuff, and I'm kind of you know steeped in this stuff all the time. Um, I kind of thought that I mean I saw the first Stack Chain go down, and you know people buying one dollar after you know the the next block, and then buying that block, and then adding a dollar to it, and all that. I saw that, but then I started seeing hashtag Stack Chain all the time, and for some reason or another, it got dislocated in my mind, and I didn't understand that I, that was this. They were talking about that the one the one dollar you know buying one dollar more than than your competitor, um, and I kind of just didn't really watch it. And I'm which which means that I'm not in the stack chain, and I can't afford to get into it now. But it's nice to see these kinds of things going on because you know where did that come from? That came from Hoddle and not, not the stack chain. Clearly, that was Arizona and Hoddle's idea, but it borrowed from the concept that Hoddle and not started before he pissed off Fake Toshi. Fuck that guy, by the way. I hope Craig. Well, Craig Wright, you are a fraud. Uh, you will always be a fraud. You were always anything but a fraud. You're a fraud, and so is your friend Calvin Ayer, the pedophile. Anyway, so, that aside, Hoddle and not did the lightning torch and it was the same thing. We kept passing the torch to each other and I think we were increasing it by one Satoshi or something like that. I can't remember exactly because it was been a, it's been a while, but Hodlinot started that concept. And it's nice to see that now the concept is kind of burning cuck bucks. So there you go. Now, <clears throat> this one is a bit long but I think it's going to be worth it. Mike Hobart is writing it for Bitcoin Magazine. 
how the state of global markets could be pushing the Federal Reserve to adopt Bitcoin. In the wee hours of the morning on Friday, September the 23rd, 2022, markets saw yields on the U.S. 10-year bond spike up over 3.751%, highs not seen since 2010, shocking the market into fears of breaching 4% and the potential for a run in yields as economic and geopolitical uncertainty continued to gain momentum. Yields would slowly grind throughout the weekend and at approximately 7 a.m. Central Time on Wednesday, September the 28th, that feared 4% mark on the U.S. 10-year bond was crossed. What followed approximately three hours later around 10 a.m. on Wednesday, September 28th, was a precipitous cascade in yields falling from 4.01% to 3.69% by 7 p.m. that day. Now, that may not seem like much cause for concern to those unfamiliar with these financial instruments, which is almost everybody, but it's important to understand that when the United States bond market is estimated to be about $46 trillion deep as of 2021, spread across all the various forms that, quote, bonds can take, as reported by SIFMA, and taking into consideration the law of large numbers then to move a market that is as deep as the United States 10-year treasury that rapidly requires quite a lot of financial force, for lack of a better term. It's also important to note here for readers that yields climbing on the U.S. 10-year denotes existing of positions, selling of 10-year bonds, while yields falling signals purchasing of 10-year bonds. This is where it's also important to have another discussion because at this point, I can hear your, the gears turning, quote, but if yields falling represents buying, that's good. Sure, it could be determined as a good thing normally. However, this is happening now is not organic market activity, i.e. yields falling currently is not a representation of market participants purchasing the 10-years because they believe it to be a good investment or in order to hedge positions. No, no. They are buying because circumstances is forcing them to buy. This is a strategy that has been known as yield curve control. Quote, under yield curve control, the Fed would target some longer term rate and pledge to buy enough long term bonds to keep the rate from rising above its target. This would be one way for the Fed to stimulate the economy if bringing short-term rates to zero isn't enough. Sage Bells and David Wessel from the bookings. I don't know if that's bookings. What is that? Yeah, bookings.edu. I guess that's the Brookings, uh, Brookings Institute. This is effectively market manipulation, preventing markets from selling off as they would organically. The justification for this is that bonds selling off tend to impact entities like large corporations, insurance funds, pensions, hedge funds, etc. as treasury securities are used in diversification strategies for wealth preservation. And following the market manipulations of the great financial crisis, which saw the propping up of markets with bailouts, the current state of financial markets is significantly fragile. The wider financial market, encompassing equities, bonds, real estate, etc., etc., can no longer weather a sell-off in any of these silos, as all are so tightly intertwined with with each other that a cascading sell-off would likely follow, otherwise known as contagion. What follows is a brief recount of a Twitter Spaces discussion led by Dmitry Kofinas, 
host of the Hidden Forces podcast, which has been one of my favorite sources of information and elaboration on geopolitical machinations of late. This article is meant solely for education and entertainment. None of what is stated here should be taken as financial advice or recommendation. What we have been seeing over recent months is that central banks across the world are being forced into resorting to yield curve control in an attempt to defend their own fiat currencies from obliteration by the United States dollar as a dynamic of the Federal Reserve System of the United States' aggressive raising of interest rates. An additional problem to the United States' raising of interest rate is that as the Federal Reserve, or the Fed, hikes interest rates, which also cause the interest rates that we owe on our debt to rise, increasing the interest bill that we owe to ourselves as well as those who own our debt, resulting in a doom loop of requiring further debt sales to pay down interest bills as a function of raising the cost of said interest bills. And this is why yield curve control gets implemented as an attempt to place a ceiling on yields while raising the cost of debt for everyone else. Meanwhile, this is all occurring. The Fed is also attempting to implement quantitative tightening by letting mortgage-backed securities reach maturity and effectively getting cleared off their balance sheets. Whether QT is actually happening is up for debate. What really matters, however, is that all this leads to the USD producing a financial and economic power vacuum resulting in the world losing purchasing power in its native currency to that of the United States dollar. Let's pause because if you if you got lost on the yield curve control stuff, what you really need is a repeat of this uh, sentence. What really matters is that this all leads to the United States dollar producing a financial and economic power vacuum resulting in the rest of the world losing purchasing power in their native currencies because of the United States dollar's strength. And that screws us too, by the way, in, in other ways, but let's continue. Now, this is important to understand because each country having its own currency provides the potential for maintaining a virtual check on USD hegemony. This is because if a foreign power is capable of providing significant value to the global market, like providing oil, coal, gas, for example, its currency can gain power against the United States dollar and allow them to not be completely beholden to the United States policy and its decisions. By obliterating foreign by obliterating foreign fiat currencies, the United States gains significant power in steering global trade and decision-making by essentially crippling the trade capabilities of foreign bodies, allied or not. This relationship of vacuuming purchasing power into the United States dollar is also resulting in a global shortage of United States dollars. This is what many of you have likely heard at least once now as tightening of liquidity, providing another point of fragility within economic conditions on top of the fragility discussed in the introduction, increasing the likelihood of something breaking. The Bank of England. This brings us to events around the United Kingdom and the Bank of England. What transpired across the Atlantic was effectively something breaking. According to the speakers in Kofinos Spaces discussion, because I have zero experience in these matters, the UK pension industry employs what Hal referred to as a duration overlays, <clears throat> which can reportedly involve leverage of up to 20 times, meaning 
that volatility is a dangerous game for such a strategy. Volatility, like the bond markets, have been experiencing this year and particularly these past recent months. When volatility strikes and markets go against the trades involved in these types of hedging strategies, when margin is involved, then calls will go out to those whose trades are losing money to put down cash or collateral in order to meet margin requirements if the trade is still desired to be held, otherwise known as margin calls. When margin calls go out and if collateral or cash is not posted, then we get what is known as a forced liquidation where the trade has gone so far against the holder of the position that the exchange or brokerage service forces an exit of the position in order to protect the exchange and the position holder from going into a negative account balance, which can have the potential of going very, very deeply negative. Yeah, no shit. And at 20X, that shit can happen real fast. This is something readers may remember from the GameStop Robinhood event during 2020 when a user committed suicide over such a dynamic playing out. What is rumored to have occurred is that a private entity was involved in one or more of these strategies. The market went against them, placing them in a losing position and margin calls were very likely to be sent out. With the potential of a dangerous cascade of liquidations, the Bank of England decided to step in and deployed yield curve control in order to avoid said liquidation cascade. To further elaborate on the depth of this issue, we look to strategies deployed by the United States with pension management. Within the United States, we have situations where pensions are criminally underfunded. In order to remedy the delta, pensions are either required to put up cash or collateral to cover the difference or deploy leverage overlay strategies in order to meet the returns as promised to pension constituents. Seeing how just holding cash on a corporate balance sheet is not a popular strategy due to inflation resulting in consistent loss of purchasing power, many prefer to deploy the leverage overlay strategy requiring allocating capital to margin trading on financial assets in the aim of producing returns to cover the delta provided by the underfunded position of the pension. Meaning that the pensions are being forced by circumstance to venture further and further out onto the risk curve in order to meet their obligations. As Bianco accurately described in the spaces, the move by the BOE was not a solution to the problem. This was a band-aid, a temporary alleviation strategy. The risk to financial markets is still the threat of a stronger dollar on the back of increasing interest rates coming out of the Fed. Hal, <clears throat> excuse me. Hal brought up an interesting point of discussion around governments and by extension central banks in that they do not typically predict or prepare for recessions. They normally react to recessions, giving credit to Bianco's consideration that there is potential for the BOE to have acted too early in this environment. One very big dynamic as positioned by Cal is that while so many countries are resorting to intervention across the globe, everybody seems to be expecting this to apply pressure on the Fed, providing that fabled pivot. There's the likelihood that this environment actually incentivizes individualist strategies for participants to act in their own interest, alluding to the Fed throwing the rest of the world's purchasing power under the bus in order to preserve USD hegemony. Oil. Going further, Cal also brought up his position that price inflation in oil is a major elephant in the room. 
the price per barrel has been falling as expectations for demand continue to slide along with continual sales of the United States Strategic Petroleum Reserve washing markets with oil. When supply outpaces demand, or in this case, the forecast of demand, then basic economics dictates that prices will diminish. It is important to understand here that when the price of a barrel of oil falls, incentives to produce more diminish leading to slowdowns in investment in oil production infrastructure. And what Cal goes on to suggest is that if the Fed were to pivot, this would result in demand returning to the markets and the inevitability for oil to resume its ascent in price will place us right back to where this problem began in the first place. I agree with Cal's position here. Cal continued to elaborate on how these interventions by central banks are ultimately futile because... As the Fed continues to hike interest rates, foreign central banks simply only succeed in burning through reserves while also debasing their local currencies. Cal also briefly touched on a concern with significant levels of corporate debt around the world, like China. Lorenz chimed in with the addition that the United States and Denmark are really the only jurisdictions that have access to 30-year fixed rate mortgages with the rest of the world tending to employ floating rate mortgages or instruments that institute fixed rates for a brief period, later resetting to a market rate. Lorenz went on, quote, with rising rates, we're actually going to be crimping spending a lot around the world, end quote. And he followed up to state that, quote, the housing market is also a big problem in China right now, but that's kind of the tip of the iceberg for the problems. He went on referring to a report from Ann Stevenson Yang of J Capital, where he said that she details that the 65 largest real estate developers in China owe just about you know, 6.3 trillion Chinese won in debt, which is about $885 billion US. <clears throat> However, it gets worse when looking at the local governments. They owe 34.8 trillion won which is $4.779 trillion U.S., with a hard right hook coming, amounting to an additional 40 trillion won or more in debt wrapped up in local financing vehicles. This is supposedly leading to local governments getting squeezed by China's collapse in its real estate markets while seeing reductions in production rates thanks to President Xi's zero COVID policy, ultimately suggesting that the Chinese have abandoned trying to support the yuan against the USD, contributing more to the power vacuum in USD. Bank reserves. Contributing to this very complex relationship, Lorenz re-entered the conversation by bringing up the issue of bank reserves. Following the event of the 2008 global financial crisis, United States banks have been required to maintain higher reserves in the aim of protecting bank solvency, but also preventing those funds from being circulated within the real economy, including investments. One argument could be made that this could be helping to keep inflation muted. According to Bianco, bank deposits have seen reallocations to money market funds to capture yield with the reverse repurchase agreement facility that is 0.55% higher than the yield on treasury bills. This ultimately results in a drain on bank reserves and suggested to Lorenz that a furthering of the dollar liquidity crisis is likely, meaning that the USD continues to suck up purchasing power. Remember that shortages in supply result in increases in price. Conclusion of that, all of this basically adds up to the USD 
gaining rapid and potent strength against nearly all other national currencies, except perhaps the Russian ruble, and resulting in complete destruction of foreign markets, while also disincentivizing investments in nearly any other financial vehicle or asset. Now, for what I did not hear, I very much suspect that I am wrong here and that I am misremembering or misinterpreting what I have witnessed over the past, you know, two years. But I was personally surprised to hear zero discussion around the game theory that has been occurring between the Fed and the European Central Bank in league with the World Economic Forum around what I have perceived as language during interviews attempting to suggest that the Fed needs to print more money in order to support the economies of the world. This support would suggest an attempt to maintain the balance of power between the opposing fiat currencies by printing USD in order to offset the other currencies that are being debased. Now, we know what has played out since, but the game theory still remains. The ECB's decisions have resulted in significant weakening of the European Union, leading to the weakness in the euro as well as weakening relations between the European nations. In my opinion, the ECB and WEF have signaled aggressive support and desire for developments of central bank digital currencies, as well as for more authoritarian policy measures of control for their constituents. What I see is vaccine passports and attempts at seizing lands held by farmers, for starters. Over these past two years, I believe that Jerome Powell of the Federal Reserve has been providing aggressive resistance to the United States' development of a CBDC, while the White House and Janet Yellen have ramped up pressures on the Fed to work on producing one, with Powell's aversion to development of a CBDC seeming to wane in recent months against pressures from the Biden administration. I'm including Yellen in this as she has, in my opinion, been a clear extension of the White House. It makes sense to me that the Fed would be hesitant to develop a CBDC, aside from being hesitant to employ any technology that is not understood, with the reasoning being that the United States major commercial banks share in ownership of the Federal Reserve System. A CBDC would completely destroy the function that commercial banks serve in providing a buffer between fiscal and monetary policy and the economic activity of average citizens and businesses, which is precisely why, in my humble opinion, Yellen wants production of a CBDC in order to gain control over economic activity from top to bottom, as well as to gain the ability to violate every citizen's rights to privacy from the prying eyes of the government. Obviously, government entities can acquire this information today anyway. However, the bureaucracy we have currently can still serve as points of friction to acquiring said information, providing a veil of protection for the American citizens, although a potentially very weak veil. What this ultimately amounts to is, one, a furthering of the currency war that has been ensuing since the start of the pandemic, largely going underappreciated as the world has been distracted with the hot war occurring in Ukraine, and two, an attempt at further destruction of individual rights and freedoms both within and outside of the United States. China seems to be the furthest along in the world with regards to development of a sovereign power CBDC, and its implementation is much easier for it. It has had its social credit score system active for multiple years now, making integration of such an authoritarian wet dream much easier as the invasion of privacy and manipulation of the populace via the SCS, the social credit score, is providing a foot in the door. 
The reason I'm surprised that I did not hear, so I'll try that again. The reason I'm surprised that I did not hear this make it into the discussion is that this adds a very, very important dynamic to the game theory of the decision-making behind the Fed and Jerome Powell. If Powell understands the importance of maintaining the separation of central and commercial banks, which I believe he does, and if he if he understands the importance of maintaining USD hegemony with regard to the United States power over foreign influence, which I believe he does, and he understands the desires for bad actors to have such perverse control over a population's choices and economic activity via a CBDC, which I believe he might, he would therefore understand how important it is for the Fed to not only resist the implementation of a CBDC, but he would also understand that in order to protect freedom, both domestically and abroad, that this ideology of proliferation of freedom would require both an aversion to CBDC implementation and a subsequent destruction of competition against the USD. It's also important to understand that the United States is not necessarily concerned with the USD gaining too much power because we largely import the majority of our goods. We export USD. In my opinion, what follows is that the United States utilizes the crescendo of this power vacuum in an attempt to gobble up and consolidate the globe's resources and build out the necessary infrastructure to expand our capabilities, returning the U.S. as a producer of high-quality goods. This, therefore, opens up a real opportunity for the United States to further its power. With the official adoption of Bitcoin, very few discuss this, and even fewer may recall, but the FDIC went around probing for information and comments in its exploration of how banks could hold crypto assets on their balance sheets. When these entities say crypto, they more often than not mean Bitcoin. The problem is that the general populace's ignorance of Bitcoin's operations caused them to see Bitcoin as risky when aligning with the asset, as far as public relations are concerned anyway. That's... Or what's even more interesting is that we have not heard a peep out of them since, leading me to believe that my thesis may be more likely to be correct than not. If my reading of Powell's situation was correct, and this all were to play out, the United States would be placed in a very powerful position. The United States is also incentivized to follow this strategy as our gold reserves have been dramatically depleted since World War II, with China and Russia both holding significant coffers of the precious metal. Then there's the fact that Bitcoin is still very early in its adoption with regards to utilization across the globe, and institutional interests only just beginning. If the U.S. wants to avoid going down in history books as just another Roman Empire, it would behoove it to take these things very, very seriously. But, and this is the most important aspect to consider, I assure you that I have likely misread the environment. No, sir, you have not misread the environment at all. Nope, nope, that's the end of the article. But Mike Hobart has correctly read almost every aspect of this. The United States dollar is right now, right now is a juggernaut. It cannot be stopped. And I think that's one of the reasons Ray Dalio a couple of days ago said that cash is now king again. And he's not exactly wrong. Now, I know you're throwing dirty, rotten heads of lettuce at me for saying that and not saying Bitcoin, Bitcoin, Bitcoin. I, I, I have to deal in facts. And the fact of the matter is, right now, the dollar is kicking everything's ass. 
which means that you can buy cheap Bitcoin. Okay? It's the long game, ladies and gentlemen. It's, you've got to play a lot longer game than you thought you were going to play. It's okay. Unless you're planning on getting hit by a gravel truck tomorrow, you can play the long game. And we got to do this shit anyway. We've got to play the long game in everything else. I was talking about milk. Because of our short-term thinking led to a abysmal apathy in the United States public and basically the West as a whole, we have food that is dead. We have food that is dead. All of it's fucking dead. It's either sprayed with herbicides or pesticides or has been inoculated against 12 different things or heated up to 170 degrees in a pipe and homogenized with God only knows what other things so that it can arrive on your grocery store's shelves deader than a hammer. And it's because of short-term thinking that got us in this position. Play the long game and apply that everywhere else in your life everywhere else. Let's run the numbers. CBDC, CNBC. Wow, I'm just not even going to try to correct that one. CNBC, futures and commodities. Oil is ripping to the high side. Why? OPEC cut their production. That's why West Texas Intermediate is up just a little bit over 1% to $87.43 a barrel. Brent North Sea likewise up 1.39% to $93.08 a barrel. Natural gas 1.59% to the upside, $6.94 per thousand cubic feet. Gasoline fell by a tenth of a point down to $2.68 a gallon. Metals having a hard day. Gold down 0.67, uh, yeah, 6.7%. Silver is down 2 to 2.98%, platinum down 2.15%, copper is the only gainer today, but it's only up by two tenths of a point. Palladium is down almost three full points. Agricultural futures are fully mixed. Biggest loser today is cotton. Wow, taking it in the nutsack. 5.41% to the downside. Biggest winner is coffee. Two and a half going up. The Dow down 0.62. The S&P uh, down 0.89. The NASDAQ is down uh, 1.14. The S&P mini is down, down 1.27. Man, that's a cat fight right there, dude. Everything's just getting slaughtered. Nobody can predict what the hell is going to happen in this market. Don't try, don't try, don't try. Just Buy Bitcoin with your strong ass dollar and hold it with strong hands. $20,182.53, 1.6 million BTC changing hands in the last 24 hours. 6.27 BTC is the average transaction value. Meanwhile, the median transaction value is 0.023 BTC, 470 bucks. Block times are low some of the lowest i've ever seen seven minutes and 50 seconds holy shit with a 9.4 percent rise in hash rate we're at 271.7 exahashes per second i think i think that's a new uh, all-time high for hash rate uh let's see we have yeah oh yeah uh doge yeah your shit coin indicator 
0.064 United States dollars. So you can imagine what the rest of the shitcoin field's doing. 2,266 transactions waiting on two blocks to clear. $385.4 billion market cap. That's 3.41% of gold's market cap. You can get 11.8 ounces of shiny metal rocks with your one Bitcoin, of which there are 19,170,042.17 of, and 4,983.1 of those are in the Lightning Network valued at just north of $100 million being run over 17,230 nodes sporting 85,122 uh, payment channels. And I just got caught there because I just saw percentage torque capacity has gone below 69%. Wow. We're at 68.9%. Jesus. Oh God. That's going to do it for vitals. Welcome to part two of the boost you can use. If Fatoshi with 5,000 Satoshis uh, says, if we ever meet in person, can you talk at 1.25? If we ever meet in person, can you talk at 1.25? <laughs> now I got it. Uh, yeah, okay, okay. I, yeah, I know. I got it. Yeah. Point taken, Fatoshi. Uh, Obex, 420 sats with the big 420, the pop boost. And, oh, God, it's a Roblox, literally. He actually spelled this out all in block form of the alphabet. Edge effect, I edge effect, appreciate edge effect, your edge effect, content edge effect, thank you edge effect, stay sexy edge effect. I, I don't think I ever considered myself sexy, but thank you, dude. I appreciate it. Uh, Jim Leahy, 200 sats, negative 10 points for not liking Musk. Not only do I not like him, I hate him. Can't stand them. Causes too many freaking problems. Uh, user a, 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 with a lot of numbers, 100 sats. And no, that's not my friend Bubba. That's another lot of, the lot of numbers. Okay, what do we need to do? What do we need to do? We need to talk about uh, South Carolina state treasurer travels to El Salvador to learn about Bitcoin adoption. Here, here we go. Sean Amick, Bitcoin Magazine, a delegation from South Carolina, U.S., Travel to El Salvador to learn how the country's recognition of Bitcoin as legal tender is transforming its economy per a release into Bitcoin magazine. Business and technological leaders, healthcare officials, and straight state treasurer Curtis Loftus toured El Salvador for five days, traveling from one end of the country to the other. The delegation met with multiple local government officials to get an understanding of what the emerging technology was achieving. Quote, what we witnessed in El Salvador is very useful in our efforts to encourage more support and understanding for digital assets and emerging technologies here in South Carolina, said Dennis Fasulala, president of the South Carolina Emerging Technologies Association, per the release. Loftus was recently asked by the General Assembly to explore the continued development and potential adoption of Bitcoin. The state treasurer was meant to identify methods to seek more stakeholders across the state while showcasing benefits from the increased utilization of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Quote, We heard multiple stories about how street vendors have embraced this technology and significantly grown their business as a result. While there are a number of variables to consider, it's exciting to ponder the prospects of how South Carolinians, especially those in our rural communities, might also benefit from Bitcoin. Furthermore, 
Loftus and other members of the delegation witnessed Ms. Uh, Mi Premier Bitcoin's education program and how it helps students understand and implements the use of Bitcoin with a focus on financial literacy. And that should also be financial uh, liberty, by the way. Anyway, whatever. Uh, quote, El Salvador is rapidly evolving uh, as a country that has taken an, ing- an aggressive approach to transform a largely unbanked population into one that is now embracing the use of Bitcoin, said the treasurer. Loftus also said that he paid for this trip out of his own pocket, noting that no taxpayer dollars were used to fund the delegation. Moreover, from October 5th through the 7th, two of El Salvador's top ministers will be presenting on the impact Bitcoin has made for the country at the South Carolina Bitcoin Blockchain Week conference. Okay, that's the end of it. I think it's important to note that he paid for this out of his own pocket, unless, of course, he's lying through his teeth. He's a politician. They do that. Let's assume he's not. And he paid for it out of his own pocket. Why is that important? Because if he had used taxpayer funds to do this, it would have hit all the news wires and he would have been on the short end of the, hanging on the short end of the stick for the beating, right? It would have been Paul Krugman. It would have been Steve Hankey. It would have been that idiot Jim Cramer all talking about how, look, look how they're wasting money on Bitcoin. They're going to go learn about a failed technology down there in El Salvador and they're using your money, ladies and gentlemen, to go do it. And Loftus said, I'm not going to put myself in that frying pan. That's a, that was a very smart move. Again, if it's true. Now, Michael Saylor, Michael Saylor, uh, Michael Saylor snubs claims that he doesn't use the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Yeah, you may have seen this on Twitter yesterday. It's kind of funny. Uh, this is, in fact, who's writing this? Joseph Hall from Cointelegraph, the executive chairman of MicroStrategy, Michael Saylor, does not like to be called out. He responded to a poll shared by Eric Wall, a crypto researcher, that suggested he had not used Bitcoin's Layer 2 Lightning Network more than three times with a Twitter poll of his own. Hmm, okay. That's nice. Saylor replied to the poll with a resounding yes and kickstarted a meme competition with a 1 million Satoshi giveaway worth around 200 bucks to the most liked meme. In giving away Satoshis to prize winners, Saylor uh, will literally use the Lightning Network three times. In typical crypto Twitter fashion, Wall has since created a new poll suggesting that it's actually Saylor's assistant who is tweeting back and forth and not the CEO himself. Wall told Cointelegraph, quote, my latest poll asked whether it's Saylor or his assistant who made any of the comments you're referring to. The alternative suggesting it's his assistant is that's currently winning. Yeah. End quote. Saylor first tweeted about the Lightning Network in May 2021 and has since become a proponent for the Layer 2 payment solution built on Bitcoin as well as LiFi or Lightning Finance. Wall, a former chief investment officer at Arcane Research, has called out Saylor several times and his initial optimism about the Lightning Network in 2018 has dissolved into critiques. Other prominent bitfluencers, as they're known, such as Udi Wertheimer and Lily, head of business development at Foundation Devices, regularly knock the LN. Lily recently called the network a failure and Udi said, quote, nobody uses it. Yeah, well, nobody listens to Udi anymore. The poll, as well as recent commentary from Wall, bringing into focus a bigger issue. Is the Lightning Network a fringe solution? 
to Bitcoin scalability problem that even the biggest names in the Bitcoin space struggle to use? Or is the Lightning Network following eight years of development a failure? Wall shared a series of videos highlighting difficulties in transferring funds over the Lightning Network from old Bitcoin wallets to a new phone. He also predicted that Bitcoin capacity on the Lightning Network will never exceed 6,000 BTC before 2023. Bitcoin network capacity surged through 4,000 BTC in June and 5,000 BTC in October. With two months to go until year end, Wall tweeted that it's going to be a nail biter. Honestly, Wall, no, it's not. Nobody gives a shit but you about what your fucking call is. So shove it up your ass, dude. Perhaps. Major companies entering the space will bolster LN usage and improve sentiment. Sailor is doubling down again on his Bitcoin strategy as micro as MicroStrategy is hiring Lightning developers. Furthermore, Nidig, a leading Bitcoin company, announced in its Q3 report that now it's time for Lightning, stating its intentions to contribute to the Lightning network. For smaller Bitcoin first companies, deals are struck and announcements are made on a weekly basis. Strike recently led a successful $80 million funding round, while Galoy, the team behind El Salvador's Bitcoin Beach Wallet, has implemented dollars onto the Lightning Network, a boom for emerging markets. In Gibraltar, a highly sophisticated financial market, Lightning Network adoption is thriving. Finally, in a recent panel discussion moderated by Cointelegraph in France, Prominent Lightning developers, including Dr. Bitcoin himself, Christian Decker, and data scientist Rene Picard, mulled over whether transaction failure on the Lightning Network is acceptable in 2022. The overwhelming sentiment from the panel that day is that the Lightning Network is still a work in progress. It's neither a resounding success as it's still early. For Nicholas Berti, CEO of Galoy, the group behind the Adopting Bitcoin, a Lightning Summit in El Salvador, quote, the adoption of Bitcoin in El Salvador was the tipping point for lightning, end quote. The El Salvador Bitcoin law hit its one-year anniversary one month ago. In the meantime, there are now hundreds of memes in reply to Sailor's tweet. Cointelegraph reached out to Wall, who declined to comment. Cointelegraph will update the article if Sailor, Wertheimer, or Lily share any commentary. Honestly, I think... Okay, I, I told Wall, Eric Wall to shove it up his ass just a second ago, so this may be surprising. I don't actually hate the guy. That's he, He's one of those guys that adversarially thinks himself into fights. Is when, And, you know, Udi Wertheimer tried to do that. He tried to go adversarial, and it just blew up in his face. Eric Wall seems to be a little bit more measured and metered when he does this kind of stuff. I still think he's fucking wrong. I mean, 100%. I use, I just used Lightning Network. How did I just use the Lightning Network? I read you boosts. My boostograms. The only way I get them is if a, well, that's the only way that I should get them is with a successful Lightning payment. It, it did occur that Fountain had apparently had some issues going on a couple of weeks ago that caused a couple of really big uh, Satoshi donations or, or boost to come to me, but they never actually, the transaction never actually happened. I don't know if it was a, I don't know if that, if, I don't know if it was fountain. I, I don't know. I, we, I still don't know what the hell happened there. So technically I was able to get shit uh, boostograms without a successful lightning payment. But when I go back and I look at the boost that I have today versus my, like if I go open up Thunderhub to look at my Lightning node, 
I will see matching, like matching time, uh, not only matching Satoshi amounts, but the timestamp was roughly around that exact same exact time. So it does work for me. And I get somebody was boosting me again, a 50 Satoshis a minute for like an hour. It was, I'm just like, whoa, my God, dude, I usually recommend one Satoshi. If I can get a thousand people to listen to the show and they're just streaming me one Satoshi a minute, that's a lot of Satoshis guys. You know, I don't need 50 all at once. I don't want to deplete y'all's lightning wallets, but I, I do appreciate them. But the point is, is that Eric Wall is 100% incorrect. Yes. Does Lightning have failed payments? Yeah. Sometimes I put my Visa card into a, a chip reader and it says chip malfunction. And you know what I have to do? I got to pull the card out, rub the chip a little bit, maybe put some electrons on it and shove it back in that son of a bitch. And guess what? It works. How is How am I not... How is it that everybody in the world isn't all over Visa and MasterCard's ass for a misswiped card or a card reader that's a little, or the, the uh, chip reader or the chip itself uh, can't be read by the chip reader because it's got some gunk on it? Do you see anybody crying about that shit at all? No, you don't. Why? Because it's not a fucking problem. That's why not. You take it out, you shove it in, you... Do your transaction. It's the same thing with Lightning. I had, I was trying to send like 40,000 sats from like my uh, blue wallet over to my actual Lightning node because I want to open up another channel. And oh my God, the f first time I sent it, it failed. And the second time I sent it, it went through. You know how, what, how much time on target I spent for that transaction? Under a minute, under a minute to get a failure notice and then try it again and boom, it happened. Sometimes I get two failure notices. Oh my God. Well, sometimes I got to pull my card out of the card reader twice. It happens. So while I appreciate Eric's position as somebody who's thinking adversarially, I don't think adversarial means calling LN dead when it clearly works for not only me, but a shit ton of other people. So knock it off. That's going to do it for the morning roundup. Dad says, jokes, the Egyptians claim that there are no crocodiles in their country. I think they're in denial. Don't let apathy be the enemy of anything that you want to do in your life. We've seen what it's done to the soil, and we've seen what it's done to our food supply. We've seen how Everything we eat is essentially dead. And I know that's kind of, you know, oxymoronic in so far as, of course, you have to kill the, the steer before you cut it up. Clearly, meat's dead. Yeah, I, I get that part. But there's a lot of foods that we eat, and milk is the, the canary in the coal mine. If we can kill it, I don't know, some noise, weird noise is going on outside. If we can kill it, we kill it. But the whole reason we got here is because we were so distracted for so long by such a bullshit story. And that is probably where Americans are actually kind of stupid, right? Because we were distracted and we weren't, we weren't keeping up with ourselves. We weren't noticing what was going on around us. Because when, when you financialize everything 
everything. You financialize everything, then your distraction lies in how the hell am I going to retire? And my point, my big question is, do I mean, at one point or another, sure, you got to, but this, this 65, I know 65 year olds that would, they would choose death before they chose retirement because they love what they're doing and they're physically fit. They're completely active. What I don't, I don't see 62 is considered or 60 or 61 or something like that is considered early retirement. So you don't get all of your retirement funds. And the, the notion that, that you were worried about this shit in, in, the, in your 30s. How did that occur? I mean, in the 14th century, what, you know, how the hell did you have retirement account? You just saved money. That was your retirement account. If you chose that you were to not work after 65, but I'm pretty certain that if you lived past a baby, you were, and you didn't die before 65 of the plague or something like that, you could live to 80, 90, and 1490. It happened. There are several accounts that no, you know, that not everybody died at exactly 54, which was the average age of death back in those times or 40, 44, something like that. But my, my point is, is that something about humans had changed when we were out there kicking ass like Genghis Khan and the ancient Romans and the, uh, the, the Plains Indians before Europeans came over here, okay? Everybody was kicking ass and you know what they didn't have? They didn't have retirement accounts. They didn't, they weren't worried about it. They weren't so distracted by it that they noticed that their food, that they didn't notice that their food was dead, that it had no nutrition anymore, that they could eat and eat and eat and eat and still be nutritionally starved, yet fat with calories. Everything around us is in clown world mode, leveraged 20 times over. And we all know what happens when margin calls come in. So don't get distracted and look to see art. Ask, ask yourself this question before I leave. Do you think that you're distracted? Really examine that question. Start looking around, go, well, ask yourself, go, am I distracted? Is it possible that yes, you are distracted? Like my question to myself would be, is it possible that I'm distracted and have been distracted for a great many years? The answer to that question for me is absolutely. I have been distracted for so long, I've let everything go because I'm worried about other shit and most of that shit I can't control. The only thing that I can control is to use my brain to figure out how to get around all this shit and not go to jail. With that said, I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.